Well, let's take our Bibles and we'll turn together to Acts chapter 25. We're nearing the end of our study in the book of Acts, and actually we are considering two chapters this morning, so it's a larger portion of Scripture. I say that not by way of apology, but just to prepare you as we read it. I don't want you to lag in your attention, um, but I trust you'll see that the, mem- the momentum is such in the narrative at this point that there really is no good place to break in these two chapters, uh, to break it up into smaller portions. In, in these two chapters, we have the single episode of Paul's final uh, defense uh, of his case and defense of the faith before he's shipped off to Rome, uh, where he's given the opportunity to stand trial before Caesar. So how, how did that come about? How did heading off to Rome come about? That's what we find out this morning. It's actually the first of four appeals that Paul makes in this section. He appeals to Caesar. That's the first of four appeals we'll see, and I think it's the, the easiest one uh, to unpack. So let's just actually begin with that. We'll read the first 12 verses, and then um, we'll continue on in a moment. So beginning in chapter 25. Now, three days after Festus had arrived in the province, he went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea, and the chief priests and the principal men of the Jews laid out their case against Paul, and they urged him, asking as a favor against Paul that he summon him to Jerusalem because they were planning an ambush to kill him on the way. Festus replied that Paul was being kept at Caesarea and that he himself intended to go there shortly. So, said he, let the men of authority among you go down with me, and if there's anything wrong about the man, let them bring charges against him. After he stayed among them not more than eight or ten days, he went down to Caesarea, and the next day he took his seat on the tribunal and ordered Paul to be brought. When he had arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many and serious charges against him that they could not prove. Paul argued in his defense, neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar have I committed any offense. But Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, do you wish to go up to Jerusalem and there be tried on these charges before me? Paul said, I am standing before Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried. To the Jews I've done no wrong, as you yourself know very well. If then I am a wrongdoer wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. But if there is nothing to their charges against me, no one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. Then Festus, when he had conferred with his counsel, answered, To Caesar you have appealed. To Caesar you shall go. So the first appeal uh, today is the appeal to Caesar. Last we left Paul, he had been remanded back into prison by uh, the... Procurator, the, the governor of this region um, uh, named Felix, because he was unable or unwilling, rather, to make a decision on Paul's case. He waffled, he wavered. Two years later, you'll remember it was because he was corrupt that he wavered. Two years later, his corruption catches up to him because Nero, himself a corrupt emperor, ousts him from his position and replaces him with Festus. So now Paul's a case starts all over again uh, because now there's a new governor. Somebody else needs to hear the charges brought against him and decide his fate. And 
the Jews think that having a, a new inexperienced governor in charge will be their opportunity to kind of finally deal with all their Pauline woes, right? Uh, Festus doesn't know what's going on. Maybe we can trick him to bringing Paul back to us in Jerusalem. And on the way from Caesarea to Jerusalem, we'll ambush him and we'll kill him. We can finally be done with this man, Paul. Uh, Although Festus initially resists their ploys, you'll notice in verse 9, he gives into the the pressure of his new constituents. And he says to Paul, well, are you sure you don't want to come back uh, to Jerusalem? says verse 9, Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said that to Paul. Uh, and Paul knows that's ridiculous. No, there's, there's, there's no jurisdiction there. I'm standing before a Roman tribunal, Caesar's tribunal. That's where I should be standing. Uh, to the Jews, I've done no wrong, and you yourself know that, he says in verse 10. He's saying there's nothing back in Jerusalem for me. Everybody knows I've not committed a crime So the question is not a Jewish one, it's a Roman one. So I'm right where I need to be. But Paul senses that Festus is not trustworthy. So that's why he appeals to an authority higher than Festus. He realizes that he's not going to get justice with this governor. So verse 11, he appeals to Caesar, which is well within his rights as a Roman citizen. The problem for Festus, however is the same problem that has faced every grade schooler at some point in his or her life. He had to write a report. And he didn't know what to say. He didn't know what to write, right? Because if he sends him up to Caesar, he needs to take with him or send with him a report, a paper that explains the charges up to this point. This is who Paul is. This is what they're saying he did. This is what he's saying he's done. He needs to catch Caesar up on everything. And the the problem is, he actually doesn't know the situation at all. He's new to this, and he hasn't really been able to get straight answers from, from the Jews. So we're going to see that he uses um, this providential visit from a King Agrippa to help him out in that regard. So let's now return to verse 13, and we'll read the remainder of our text. In verse 13 of chapter 25. Now, when some days had passed, Agrippa, the king, and Bernice, that's his sister, arrived at Caesarea and greeted Festus. And as they stayed there many days, Festus laid Paul's case before the king, saying, There's a man left prisoner by Felix. When I was at Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews laid out their case against him, asking for a sentence of condemnation against him. I answered them that it was not the custom of the Romans to give up anyone before the accused met the accusers face to face and had opportunity to make his defense concerning the charge laid out against him. So when they came together here, I made no delay, but on the next day I took my seat on the tribunal and ordered the man to be brought. When the accusers stood up, they brought no charge in his case of such evils as I'd supposed. Rather, they'd certain points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a certain Jesus who was dead, but whom Paul asserted to be alive. Being at a loss how to investigate these questions, I asked whether he wanted to go to Jerusalem and be tried there regarding them. But when Paul had appealed to be kept in custody for the decision of the emperor, I ordered him to be held until I could send him to Caesar. Then Agrippa said to Festus, I would like to hear the man myself. This is exactly what Festus wanted, by the way. Perfect. Tomorrow, he said, 
you will hear him. So on the next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp, and they entered the audience hall with the military tribunes and the prominent men of the city. Then at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. And Festus said, King Agrippa, and all who are present with us, you see this man about whom the whole Jewish people petitioned me, both in Jerusalem and here, shouting uh, that he ought not to live any longer. But I found that he had done nothing deserving death. And as he himself appealed to the emperor, I decided to go ahead and send him. Here's his problem. But I have nothing definite to write to my Lord about him. Therefore, I brought him before you all, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after we've examined him, I may have something to write. For it seems to me unreasonable in sending a prisoner not to indicate the charges against him. So Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, I am going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you're familiar with all the customs and the controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. My manner of life from my youth, spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem, is known by all the Jews. They've known for a long time, if they're willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I've lived as a Pharisee, and now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our twelve tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope, I'm accused by Jews, O king. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth, and I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them, and I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme, and in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand up upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you've seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. To this day, I have had the help that comes from God. And so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and, and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. And as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you're out of your mind. 
Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. But Paul said, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I'm speaking true and rational words, for the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly. For I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice. This has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? Paul said, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. Then the king arose, and the governor and Bernice and those who were sitting with them, and when they had withdrawn, they said to one another, this man is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, this man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. Well, that was the first appeal, an appeal to Caesar. Now having this opportunity to speak before Agrippa, um, he's going to make several more appeals. So who's Agrippa? Agrippa is the great-grandson of the Herod that ruled the region of Judea when Jesus was born, the one who killed the baby boys. He's the son of the Herod that killed James and tried to kill Peter when he had that miraculous escape just a, a few chapters ago in Acts chapter 12. Interestingly, he does not actually have jurisdiction. This Herod does not have jurisdiction, Herod Agrippa. Uh, over Jerusalem or Samaria. The Romans are holding tightly to that region, uh, but because he is part Jewish, Festus wants him to hear Paul out so that he can help him write this report that's due very soon. I need you to help me explain what in the world is going on to Caesar. He could understand better the intricacies of Paul's situation uh, and help Festus know how to explain it. And so while uh, Paul awaits his uh, request to be fulfilled, that he goes to Caesar, he has this opportunity to come before Agrippa, and he makes this next appeal, and it's an appeal to Scripture. Notice that in verses 4 through 8 of chapter 26. Uh, Because Agrippa has a Jewish background, Paul knows he can appeal to this man's familiarity with the ways of God that have been handed down through the Jewish Scriptures. So, So we see, secondly, an appeal to Scripture. Notice the inclusive language Paul uses uh, in verses 5 through 7. He says, our religion to Agrippa, our fathers, our 12 tribes. He puts he and Agrippa in the same group, even though externally they couldn't look more different from one another. Remember uh, the king and his sister come in with all this great pomp. Paul's there in chains. And yet he says, you and I are the same because we share the same faith. Our faith in God and our faith in his word. And Paul says, it's because I believe in God's word, which you also believe, Agrippa, that I'm on trial. That's what it's all about. I believe the scriptures, the same ones you believe. So verses 6 and 7. Now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our 12 tribes hope to attain. And they earnestly worship night and day because of this reason. So he holds to a hope, and that's why he's in uh, jail right now. And that's why he's being tried. When, when Paul refers to this hope, he's referring to a messianic hope, a hope that rests in the work of Jesus Christ. All of Israel put their hope in a coming Messiah. They all shared that messianic hope, one who would come and bring eternal comfort and joy and peace, ultimately by defeating death. That, they all understood it all came down to this, to a resurrection hope. Psalm 2 speaks of it, Psalm 16, Isaiah 53, Isaiah 55 number of other places. Those are ones, though, that Paul and Peter have used in their sermons thus far in Acts. So look what Paul says in verse 22. To this day, 
I've had the help that comes from God, and so I stand here testifying both to the small and the great, saying, listen to this, nothing but what the prophets and Moses themselves said. And they said this, verse 23, that the Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. And so Paul's point is that this is what every Jew believes deep down, and it's what they all hope in. This is why they worship God, because they believe he will bring about this hope. Not another hope, but this hope. The hope of everlasting life. And Paul then suggests, though, maybe they say they believe in that hope, but they don't actually believe it. Look at verse 8. Why is it thought incredible by any of you? So he's speaking to Agrippa, but then also the Jews, by extension. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead. Why should this be considered unbelievable that Jesus was raised from the dead? God promised he would do it in the prophets, in the scriptures. And more than just promising it, God performed life-saving miracles in Israel's past. The, uh, the widow's son is raised by Elijah. And, and um, uh, we have the story of Daniel and his friends being spared uh, the, the fiery furnace. And And how about the resurrection that the entire nation, Israel, experiences? They were brought out of the pit through the Red Sea on dry ground into a new heavens and a new earth, as it were, the promised land. And all the Jews believe those things. They believe about Elijah. They believe about Daniel. They believe about the Exodus. So why not believe in the resurrection? That's what Paul's saying. Why is it thought incredible? I mean, isn't this what God said he would do? And isn't this also what he has been doing? Why not believe? Well, two reasons, at least, right? One is that they didn't want to believe because Jesus, if he was indeed the Messiah, was a pretty pathetic one from the perspective of the Jews. If he was the Messiah, he was a supremely disappointing one. He was not the savior king that they wanted, which is evidenced by the very fact that they have to bring this issue to Roman officials. If Jesus really was the Messiah, you know what they wanted? They didn't want an empty tomb. No, they didn't. they didn't. They don't want to be redeemed from their sins, not really. They want to be freed from the grip of Rome. And so a resurrection does them no good. So they don't want to believe that he's the Messiah because it would be disappointing. But there's a second reason, maybe. Maybe not just that they didn't want to believe. Maybe they really couldn't believe. To profess faith in the power of God as displayed in those stories of old that I mentioned, you know, maybe for them that's quaint and that's folksy. It's what their parents believed. It's what their grandparents believed. It's just kind of all part of tradition. They like those stories. They like the traditions. But now they're faced with a miracle in their own day and age. Were they actually spiritual enough to believe it? You see, the natural man always denies the reality of miracles precisely for that reason, because they are supernatural. They go against his very being, uh, the way he operates. That doesn't make sense to him. And some uh, modern critics of Christianity have actually laid, um, or have actually you know, said that that's why people in the biblical times believed in, in uh, miracles, because um, they were so underdeveloped cognitively, right? We, we've become so advanced. We have science now to explain things. They believed in miracles because they had to believe in miracles. That's the only way they could make sense of the world. But now we have science. But the same barriers to belief today existed 2,000 years ago. Scientific progress aside, this is what is true in either case. 
Those who believe God and believe in God will believe in miracles. That's, that's as simple as that. That's what Paul's saying. Why is it thought incredible of you that God would raise people from the dead? If you really believe in God and who he is, then that's nothing. Those who do not believe in God do not believe in miracles. So, if you believe in God, you must accept that God can do what he says he will do. If you can't believe that he raises the dead, then you don't believe in him at all, actually. So that's what Paul's, that's what he's saying when he appeals to scripture. He's actually saying the Jews don't even believe in the God that they say they believe in. If they can't believe the resurrection. They can't have their Jewish faith and reject the Christian gospel. The two go hand in hand. The reason Paul believes in the gospel is because of his Jewish faith. And that's what he proves with his appeal to Scripture. But if that appeal doesn't work, he makes another appeal. So if you're following along, see, we're in our third appeal. He appealed to Caesar, appealed to Scripture. He appeals now to experience his own personal experience. Uh, beginning in verse 9 and following, Paul explains uh, that he's a Pharisee of Pharisees. He's one of the most zealous to protect and promote Jewish customs and tradition such that um, he was a persecutor of the church. So look at verse 9. I myself was convinced that I had to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in a raging fury, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. I didn't just let them leave. I followed after them. What's Paul's point? Paul's point is that he had absolutely nothing to gain and yet everything to lose by believing the Christian message. Nothing to gain personally. If Agrippa won't believe that Jesus is raised from the dead on account of the scriptural witness, well, maybe he will believe it on account of Paul. You know, you've heard of rock-bottom conversions, and maybe some of you, in fact, I know some of you have had those, where, you, where the Lord has placed his heavy hand upon you, and he's taken everything from you. You've hit rock-bottom. Uh, your, your, your former pleasures have left you empty, and... and and you've got nothing. Friends have deserted you. Families deserted you. And the only place that you can turn to now is God. Rock bottom conversions. But that's not Paul's conversion. No, he, he, he's at the height of his career. He, he is, he's renowned. He's respected in his field. The only reason Paul would leave the prestige and the comfortability of his Jewish life to preach the resurrection is if the resurrection actually happened. If that was something Agrippa had to consider, it's something you and I need to consider today as well. The radical transformation of all of the apostles is one of the strongest defenses for the Christian faith, the reality of the resurrection. It's the transformation of the apostles. One of the strongest, the strongest is the, the witness that we have in Scripture, revelation from God that tells us Jesus was raised from dead. Well, that's how Paul begins, but now he moves to his own experience. And this is also a powerful witness. What could make Saul of Tarsus, for whom the hatred of the church was literally the air he breathed, we're told that earlier in Acts, that he breathed out threats against the church, what could make him the biggest and the best, the greatest defender of the church? 
Or what about Peter? Peter, a coward who bravely dies for Jesus, along with literally every other apostle apart from John, although they tried to kill him too. What can explain all of this? You don't die for a fiction. You don't die for a lie. You don't collude together and all agree, yeah, let's die for this cover-up. No, but people will die for the truth. You see, Paul, he didn't simply believe in a risen Jesus. He met a risen Jesus. He met him. And you have too, if you're a Christian. You have too. Uh, Paul describes the encounter in verses 12 through 18. This is the third time the story's been repeated in Acts. The blinding light, the voice from heaven. Oh, that doesn't look like the way you met Jesus. No. But you met him just as really and just as truly as Paul did. You can... You can say with Paul that the reason you believe Jesus is because he's real to you. He's real to you. You've met him in his word. He dwells in you by his Holy Spirit. And in one sense, it's almost even more of an impressive encounter than a blinding light and a voice. He's in your heart. You've met him. You know him. He's real. Jesus is someone who is personally known by all those whom he has saved. To you, he's a friend, he's a brother, he's like a bridegroom. And all those whom Jesus meets, he gives a mission. Not unlike Paul, we're called to bear witness to the things that we've seen and the things that have been shown to us to tell others how real Jesus really is, how wonderful he is, how he alone can take you from the domain of darkness and bring you into the kingdom of light. That's the commission he gives to all of his followers. He gives it to Paul. We're told, look at verse 16 with me. Verse 16. Jesus says to Paul, rise, stand up. I've appeared to you for this purpose. Here's your mission. To appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you. Delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I'm sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those whom are sanctified by faith in me. God's witnesses and messengers are sent to open people's eyes. That's what Paul was sent to do. That's what you and I are sent to do. And yet Paul knows full well that he can't open anybody's eyes. He couldn't even open his own. He didn't cause the scales to fall off. God did. He knows that when God says, I'm sending you to open people's eyes, I'm sending you to be my instrument. So I can, I can work through you. That's true for all of us. Isn't it so good that it's not up to us to open people's eyes? And yet God can use our words and our actions as weak and as feeble as they are to actually transfer somebody from death to life. We all have that mission. This is how Jesus describes it. He says that they may receive forgiveness, verse 18, receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me, that they would receive a place. Do you feel lonely today? Do you feel out of place? Do you feel like you don't belong? Become a Christian. Become a Christian, you have a place. What's the place Jesus was referring to? What's the place of the sanctified? What's the place of saints? You're in it. It's here. It's the church. That's why I made Part of the reason I made my comment earlier about getting to know the people here. Because Jesus didn't just save you to himself. He saves us to one another. He gives us a place together. That's why Paul, when he opens up his epistles, often writes, to the saints. 
to those who are sanctified. This is what Jesus does. He brings us in. He gives them a place. Jesus is telling Paul. Paul's now telling Agrippa that real faith always brings somebody into the church. Our confession says that salvation, um, there is ordinarily no salvation outside of the church. This is what it means. If you're really a Christian, you come to the body of Christ. You have to. You can't live apart from the head. You need to be part of the body. You have a place among those who are sanctified. Conversion kept Paul from trying to destroy the church and actually brought him into the church. That's what faith in a risen Savior does. It brings you into the fellowship of the faithful. Well, it's at at about this point that Festus interrupts. We hadn't heard from him in a while. It's been Paul and Agrippa, but now we remember, oh, Festus is there. And he's getting frustrated because he's thinking this report I have to write is going to sound insane. So he takes it on Paul. Paul, you're insane. This stuff you're saying is just foolish, crazy talk. And Paul's an interesting interchange with Festus, doesn't he? He says, Festus, I'm not out of my mind. I'm, talking, I'm speaking reasonable things. And then he seems to imply that actually Festus is out of his mind. Did you pick that up? Look at verse 24. Um, Paul, you're out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. Paul said, verse 25, I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I'm speaking true and rational words. For the king knows. He's talking to Festus. He says, Festus, I'm not crazy. You know who knows I'm not crazy? Agrippa. And he looks to Agrippa, and then he continues a conversation with Agrippa, which is to say, Festus, you just leave us alone, because you're the crazy one right now. You're the irrational one. You're the unreasonable one. But King Agrippa, he knows what I'm talking about. And Paul leans in at this moment, and he drives home his entire message with the king. He sees he's not getting anywhere with Festus. And he says to Agrippa, he knows these things, and and to him I speak boldly, for I am persuaded that none of these things have escaped his notice. This hasn't been done in a corner. And then in verse 27, Paul makes his final appeal. You guys, you made it. Good job. We're at the last one. What's the final appeal in verse 27? What could we call it? Appeal to reason, maybe? An appeal to the person? To the individual, to the soul. Look at what he says. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you believe them. Here we are reminded that Paul's not really making a defense for himself, not ultimately. Not ultimately. He's making a defense of the faith. He's not seeking to get himself out of prison as much as to get Agrippa out of hell. There's this burden on Paul for the soul of that single individual who stands in front of him. It doesn't really matter if he seems to have it all in this life. Remember, he comes in with all that pomp. And Paul knows it doesn't matter if you have a position of authority. Ultimately, the only thing that matters is your answer to this question. Do you believe? Do you believe? Forget my case for a moment, Paul says. I'm not asking if you believe the Sanhedrin, if you believe my accusers. Do you believe the prophets? Do you believe God? He forces it upon the king himself. Give an answer to this question right now. You, California pastor John MacArthur, gave the world a great example of this sort of 
burden for souls several months ago in September. He wrote an open letter, maybe some of you saw it, to the governor, uh, Gavin Newsom, when Newsom uh, was using state money to put up billboards all over the country in response to the decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, telling people, you can come to California and get an abortion. We'll take you, and he even used scripture in the billboards to do that. But this is, uh, in, in this letter, MacArthur lays out what the Bible says about calling evil good and good evil and all of that, and the responsibility of magistrates to protect the innocent. But let me read you this portion. This is how he closes the letter. My concern, Governor Newsom, is that your own soul lies in the grave. Each one of us will give an account to himself of himself to God, Romans 14. One day, not very long from now, you will face that reality. Nothing is more certain. It is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment. You will stand in the presence of the holy God who created you, who is your judge, and he will demand that you give an account for how you have flouted his authority in your governing and how you've twisted his own holy word to rationalize it. As you look over the precipice of eternity, what will your answer be? Do you believe the prophets? I know you believe, King Agrippa. It's what Paul says. When you look ahead of you and see that nothing awaits you but eternal misery, what will all the clever rationalizations and the political talking points avail for you then? And by then it will be too late for any remedy or for any redemption. My plea to you, sir, is that you would not let it come to that, that you would not go to that day of judgment apart from receiving forgiveness and righteousness through faith in Christ alone. There is salvation for those who repent. Christ purchased full redemption for all who will turn from wickedness, forsake their evil thoughts and actions, and trust fully in him as our Lord and Savior. Our church and countless Christians nationwide are praying for your full repentance, MacArthur says. Now, to my knowledge, Governor Newsom never replied to MacArthur which isn't a whole lot better than the reply Paul received. Let's consider that very here finally and very briefly. What's the reply that the king gives to this question, do you believe? Agrippa replies incredulously in verse 28, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? Uh, there's a couple ways this could be translated. That's one of the ways as a question. It could be translated as a statement, though, and some of your Versions will have it that way, which is not, would you in a short time persuade me, but you almost persuaded me to be a Christian. In a short time, you almost got me to be a Christian. R.C. Sproul is surely right to have said that these were the most tragic words Agrippa ever uttered. You almost persuaded me. And I want to ask, do they represent your thoughts on the matter? Are you almost persuaded today? Do you say that you're almost convinced? Well, then I ask you, what's keeping you from being fully convinced? What is it that's standing between you and a full embracing and a full acceptance that Jesus is real, that the resurrection is real, and that Jesus is for you, that his righteousness could be for you? What's keeping you from saying, I'm fully persuaded? What's that one thing? Come and talk to me about it afterwards. You have to. Don't be almost persuaded. The almost Christian goes to the same hell as the defiant unbeliever. Or maybe you're thinking, well, certainly, Cruz, you can't expect me to believe you after hearing you talk about this just for 30 minutes. You know, in a short time, you would persuade me? I need more time. 
Surely you can't expect me to believe after such a short amount of time. Well, sure I can. I don't think it takes you weeks on end to decide if 2 plus 2 equals 4. It's rational. So is the resurrection. That's what Paul says. These things haven't been done in the corner. Everybody knows. He was presented to 500 people as eyewitnesses after his resurrection. It's logical. It makes sense. It makes sense because of the character of God, because of the promises of God. There's everything pointing to the reality of it. And you want more time? Paul appeals to reason. You don't need more time. And I need to tell you very seriously, frankly, you don't have more time. Because you say, well, let's talk about this next week. Next week is not promised to you. This afternoon is not promised to you. You have all the information you need. What will be the cost to sit on that information and to not act? Think about that. What will be the cost? You have it. You have everything you need to know. What will be the cost of not acting? I wonder what Gerald Mason would say to that question if he were still alive today. Gerald Mason, who's that? A name you probably don't recognize. Well, late on January 27, 1986, engineer Alan McDonald was pleading, along with his team of engineers, with NASA officials to call off the Challenger launch that was scheduled for the next morning. Um, McDonald worked for Morton Theokol, which was the company that manufactured the rocket, um, uh, the rocket and ran the boost, and he ran the booster rocket division. And McDonald argued that the temperature was going to be too cold. It was supposed to be below 55 degrees, and they determined that under that temperature, the rubber O-rings that were needed uh, for these um, uh, uh, for the rocket boosters would stiffen, and that would. Uh, allow fuel to escape and potentially cause an explosion. Well, NASA would not hear of it. Too much money had been put on. Too much press had been put into this. This was the first time they were sending a, a civilian into space, the teacher. But the problem for NASA was that the launch could not continue without McDonald signing off, without Allen signing off on it, because he was the head engineer of this division. So they sent over a fax and they said, sign off on this now. And he refused. He later said it was the smartest decision of his life. Well, the launch should have been called off. It did not receive the approval of the director of the booster rocket team. Well, what happened instead? Allen's supervisor, Gerald Mason, under increasing pressure from NASA, signed in his place. Mason had all the same information as McDonald and all the other engineers. He had all the same intel, and yet he did not act. He sat on it. He did nothing. Whereas Alan McDonald and his team were fully persuaded, Gerald Mason was almost persuaded. You've almost persuaded me, but not quite. 73 seconds after takeoff, Challenger exploded in space, killing seven astronauts. And the cause, while an investigation later determined, it was, quote, the failure of the primary and secondary redundant O-ring seals in a joint in the shuttle's right solid rocket booster. The exact thing that the engineers said would happen happened. Now maybe if Mason's own life, not just his career was on the line, he would have done something different. Maybe he would have been fully persuaded. You need to know your life is on the line today. Your life. You cannot afford to be almost persuaded. It took 73 seconds for Mason to become fully persuaded. 
that those men were right. 73 seconds, and he was convinced, but it was too late. Do you know the moment that every person dies, the very moment, not a second later, not even a nanosecond later, the very moment a person dies, they instantly become a believer. They instantly become fully persuaded. But the reality is God does not judge us based on our belief after death, but on our belief, your belief right now, today. The almost Christian goes to the same hell as the defined unbeliever. The maybe Christian definitely goes to hell. Don't let that be you. Father, we've considered weighty things today. And my prayer is that none of us would leave this place without being fully persuaded, fully convinced that Christ is Lord, that Christ is living and reigning right now, and that his arms are open to us and he is welcoming us, saying, take my righteousness, it is for you. Lord, increase our faith. For those of us who do not have it, Plant faith in us right now. Make us persuaded. Convince us. Only your spirit can do the work so that our faith would look up to you and to you alone. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.